Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Friday, May 3rd, and we're talking about tech companies, old and new. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Fool.com's Evan New on Skype. Evan, it's been a little while. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Did you see Avengers Endgame? I have Everyone not. In the world? I haven't seen it, but uh, <laughs> Jess, my girlfriend, went and saw it. She saw like an 11 o'clock screening of it because it was the only ticket that was left. So she's a diehard superhero fan and and loves that universe. So she made a point to see it. I happened to be out of town when she saw it. So uh, I I would have seen it, but I'm not I'm not big on that stuff. Evan, have you seen it? Yeah, I took the family. It's uh, it's pretty good. It's of course it's like three hours, and naturally my son has to go to the potty at the very end, at like the exact climactic moment at the very end of the movie. But I mean, what do you expect for like a six-year-old in a three-hour movie? <laughs> so. <laughs> That's like a commercial for Netflix right there. It's like just hit pause. <laughs> yeah. you can't pull that off in the theaters, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's good though. Well, it's nice to have you back. I mean, we've been doing a lot of shows with Brian Froldy. We've uh, been doing some shows with some other fools. But, you know, I love doing S1 shows with you, Evan, and I love talking Apple with you. And that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, we have not gotten to Uber's numbers yet. And this is going to be the show where we talk about the ride sharing company that is about to be going public. And of course, we can't really let a quarter go by without talking Apple results. That's one of your favorite companies to cover, Evan. Had to have you on to talk those two. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So we have talked about Lyft a little bit on the show before. So I don't know that the ride sharing industry needs a ton of introduction for our listeners. Uber was the first company to step up in this space. They are the dominant player. They're a little different than Lyft in some ways, though. They operate uh, internationally. They are not just in North America like Lyft is, and they have a couple of different business segments. Evan, it's not just ride hailing and ride sharing and some of these mobility concepts that Lyft has. Right, they're much bigger than Lyft. They're you know, Lyft's in two countries. They're just in North America, basically in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, Uber's in like sixty-three countries. They have about five times as many total users, uh, which makes sense given how many more countries they operate in. But yeah, like you mentioned, they also have the, this Uber Eats, which is you know, meal delivery. They have this Uber Freight, um, which is you know like this platform to connect shippers and carriers. It's not the autonomous truck driving stuff that they're exploring uh, very controversially a couple of years ago. Uh, and so yeah, this is a really sprawling company. They're also they've imagined flying cars. They're trying to develop autonomous cars. Auto- you know, they're still looking at autonomous trucks. Um, you know, they had this setback last year when they had a fatal accident related you know, involving one of their autonomous cars. But they're still pushing forward there. So I mean, they they have their hands on a lot of stuff. Despite the fact that they're a little bit more diversified than Lyft may be when it comes to business operations, really, mobility is still the name of the game for them. Personal mobility, and and that's the ride-sharing, ride-hailing business. Uh, I think that, all told, made up just over $9 billion in revenue, or uh, 82% of revenue for 2018. I think the, the total pie was about $11.2 billion. So, that's where most of the money is coming from. Uber Eats is surprisingly large, 1.5 billion in 2018, roughly 13% of revenue. Freight is a very quickly growing part of their business, but only 370 million in 2018. I think they're doing like 400% year-over-year growth over there, but it's on a pretty small denominator. Right, exactly. And I was also kind of surprised at how large Uber Eats is, but it also kind of ties back into just the sheer size of their global footprint and how many uh, countries in which they operate. So, you know, for example, um, if you compare it to a pure play like Grubhub, who's obviously you know a big player in local food delivery in the U.S., um, Uber Eats actually has more restaurants in, on their platform than Grubhub. But again, I think that's mostly a function of just you know the the, the number of countries where they operate. 
Yeah, and the pitch that they are really trying to get across to investors, it seems, is we are the everything for mobility and delivery and transportation, kind of an Amazon of transportation type pitch. Uh, and the Uber Eats plays into that a little bit. In the uh, S1, I noticed, I think 15% uh, of people that are active consumers on the ride-hailing business have used Uber Eats in the most recent quarter, Q4, that was finished. So The idea is, we build out this massive network of people that use us for ride-hailing. As we add on all this other stuff, they come to us for that, too. Right, absolutely, and that's actually you know comes back to how they define one of their active users, uh, which is you know, either you take a ride on a you know like a you know car trip in one of their cars, or and or you get a meal delivered. So if you were to just you know use one or the other, obviously they want you to do both, but you know to your point, they're trying to build one platform that does a bunch of stuff, and anyone that's using any of these services is considered uh, an active user. If you're taking a quick look at this business. It might look like Uber is profitable when Lyft is not. Uh, that is really the case because of some non-operating reasons, though. Uh, the company did post $1 billion in net income in 2018, but they posted a $3 billion operating loss during that period. Uh, most of, if not all of that profitability, was due to divestitures and unrealized gains on investments. So The core business here is still not profitable. The company managed to post a profit last year, but don't expect that going going forward. Right, and I think it you know, just boils back down to you know this idea that the underlying unit economics around these rides uh, is just not very good, and you know, arguably you know, not sustainable in my mind. But we'll kind of see how that plays out. But you know, kind of like when we talked about Lyft, I mean, the numbers just for the core business of, of facilitating these rides, the numbers just do not look good. And that's because you have two insanely competitive companies that are trying to build up their base of both drivers and riders. Right? They're trying to incentivize drivers to be a part of the platform. They're trying to incentivize riders to use it. That means very high marketing spend. Uh, that shows up a couple different ways for those companies, but it's just going to eat into profitability no matter how you account for it. Right, and you know they're just they got to compete on price because it's a commodity, and a lot of the drivers too. I mean, as it's very common knowledge that you know most drivers are on both platforms, <laughs> so you know, they're kind of competing at the same time to always you know for both the drivers and the riders and whoever can offer the best financials. A look over at some of the key business metrics. A lot of stuff moving in the right direction, as you might expect with a company that is going public. A lot of enthusiasm around the core business numbers, even if the financials aren't looking that pretty. You look over at the monthly active platform consumers, their user number for our purposes, 91 million in 2018. That's up 34%. And uh, I think I think Uber has said that the number is roughly two percent. Of the combined populations of the countries that they are focused in, like you said, about 63 countries. So they use that to illustrate that penetration is still very low, despite the fact that they have tens of millions of people as users. Right, and I think you know, of course, their their argument is going to be, hey, look how much upside there is. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of debate over where the ceiling is because a lot of people still just like to have their cars. And of course, you know, in urban environments like you live in, you know, you use a lot of ride sharing. I'm in a suburban environment. I use almost no ride ride sharing. So I think you know, there's a lot of debate over long term. You know, what what does consumer behavior look like and the kind of demographic geographical differences? How high can that number go? I mean, we'll we'll have to see. It's been funny to see how these two different companies have positioned themselves in terms of market share as they've gone public or are going public. You know, with Lyft, they were saying, "Hey, we've got 39% of I think the North American ride-hailing market." Uh, and I think they were really touting that number to say, 
you know, we're not that far behind Uber, really. We're a strong number two. You look at Uber's prospectus and they say, we have less than 1% market share of all transportation. <laughs> and so, so it's a really interesting uh, kind of case study in just how a market leader versus a second place company tries to position themselves as they're building hype as they go public. Yeah, it's all about their perspective of you know who do you want to compare yourself against, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and to your point, Evan, uh, one number that is plateauing for the company is monthly trips per MAPC. That user number we were talking about, it's pretty much hung out at about five and a half for the last year or so. Um, I worry that there's a little bit of a usage ceiling there. Most of the growth that they're experiencing is from having more riders come onto the platform, not that. Uh, the existing riders are taking more rides. That's pretty consistent with what we've seen looking at list prospectus. Uh, they see a huge jump in the cohorts of riders and usage from year one to year two, and then they more or less see it plateau. I think it's single-digit percentage growth year two and year three, and so on. And so it's not hugely concerning because you're seeing it with the other major player in the space. But yes, there there is a limit I think to how much people will use it until we see a maybe step change with autonomy or something like that, Evan. And and to kind of put a number to it, you know, if you look back at Lyft's uh, you know numbers, their their average you know rides per user uh, were something around like eight or nine, and that was kind of the same thing. Like it's not really growing a lot; it's kind of bouncing between this eight and nine level, you know, give or take, uh, kind of fluctuating within a pretty narrow range. But it is interesting that Uber's number is slightly lower than Lyft's on you know just on that. An absolute basis. Yep, and it's going to be impossible for us to not talk about these companies in lockstep, even though they define some numbers differently. Just because they are the two pure plays out there, you could argue Lyft is the actual pure play because Uber has all of these other offerings. But they're going to be the Pepsi and Coke for the ride-hailing businesses. Um, Evan, looking at the reports we're seeing, I think Uber's offering somewhere just short of 200 million shares. I think it's going to be about 180 million shares, uh, somewhere in the range of 44 to 50 dollars a piece. Uh, from what I understand, the offering is already oversubscribed. There are a lot of people that want their hands on these shares, so they're probably going to be up towards the higher end of that valuation range, which will be somewhere I think between eighty and ninety billion. Right. So I think they're looking to raise about eight to nine billion. I think the, the latest updated S one said they're expecting to get about eight point four, eight point five after paying off the you know proceed you know fees and stuff. So net of proceeds. In that neighborhood, so yeah, valued about ninety, hundred billion dollars, which is going to be pretty wild. And I think there is a lot of demand. I mean, people have been clamoring to get their hands on, you know, Uber for years and years and years, and now either now you can buy either one, Lyft or Uber. <laughs> it's a rich valuation, but it is a crazy growth story. I mean, you look back, the top line for them has tripled between twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen. There is no way, though, that this business will be profitable anytime soon. I mean, operating losses in the billions for the past couple of years. Uh, the ride-sharing business is not going to get less competitive. I think, if anything, it's more competitive because Lyft is in a stronger position now than they were a couple of years ago. And you have all of these scooter companies in the mix in all of these cities where Lyft and Uber are trying to compete now. Right, exactly. And I mean, there's all this, you know, competition coming, and you know, they're they're expanding the scooters, and even you know, we were just talking about this before the show, but the economics around the scooters is also terrible. So you know, on this core mobility business between you know ride sharing and e-scooters, both of those, the economics around those are just terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's something like you need to have them on the road for four to six months to start hitting payback period. Uh, because the scooters are not cheap; they're a couple hundred dollars. Um, unfortunately, you know, you also have to pay people to charge the scooters, distribute the scooters, all these things, and 
the useful life of the scooter is about a month, maybe six weeks, because when people are renting a scooter for a couple dollars, they ride a scooter like they're renting it for a couple dollars. They they don't value it the way <laughs> they would if they'd paid a couple hundred bucks for it themselves. Right, and then you know, and they're they're you know coming from behind in this in the scooter space. I mean, you got Bird and Lime are kind of the big players there, and of course now Uber and Lyft see that as a threat, so they're jumping in. But so that space is also going to be crazy competitive, and and it just it's just burning through capital, just like in the core business. Yeah, I, I will say I think that those two companies are in a pretty good position for the scooter wars. You know. Uh, Bird and and Lime really have their work cut out for them if they're going to try to unseat Uber and Lyft because you know as someone who has the Uber and Lyft app and has had those two apps downloaded for years now at this point, all I need to do is switch over and look for scooters. I don't need to download a new app, set up a new profile, give new payment information, which is what I need to do for all these other companies. And so I think they were quick enough in how they responded to that that um, at a certain point they might just be able to outsurvive the other companies that came in to try to disrupt them while they're burning cash. Um, but that doesn't solve the fact that there are some rough economics there, like you mentioned before. I mean, if it's just the who can burn. More cash faster. <laughs> I don't think that's a business I want any part of. <laughs> I think that's been the last 10 years in tech, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Um, I think long term, this is a somewhat interesting business just because it is uh, basically benefiting from a huge tailwind, especially in a lot of uh, urban areas where people don't own cars at the same rates that they do. One of the things that comes with that, though, is you know what happens when we start getting autonomous cars on the roads? Um, that really changes the economics of the business because you're not paying the driver, you're creating the car, or maybe licensing software, uh, and then maybe only paying out a small fixed cost, enjoying all the usage on top of a fixed cost rather than having a variable cost that you have to pay out with each ride. But Uber isn't even necessarily in the front of the pack when it comes to that. Right. I mean, Alphabet and Waymo are, are kind of up top two. I mean, Tesla's coming, but of course, no one knows what to expect from Tesla because you can never believe what Elon Musk says, and the timing of whatever he says is always off by years. <laughs> uh, but conceptually, you know, Tesla's out there wanting to create this Tesla network of ride sharing where people can rent out their, you know, autonomous cars. He's saying robo taxis on the road, a million by next year, which probably not going to happen. But Waymo's already out there right now, uh, you know. Delivering autonomous rides in the very limited markets, so yeah, Uber and Lyft are certainly way behind in terms of the technology, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's so core to their business because again, these are pure play companies, and the core economics around their core businesses are so terrible that you need this big, uh, revolutionary type of technology to really make these businesses attractive. And you're competing with companies that have a ton of cash on hand. You know, uh, Alphabet, Google Parent isn't really struggling. You know, they they had maybe a rough earnings report, but they're still doing <laughs> just fine when it comes to cash in the bank. So they've got plenty they can plow in to R&D to try to make that happen. Um, all to say, a lot of what Uber and a lot of what Lyft are trying to do, a lot of the markets are trying to play in, it's just hard. You know, and and what you ultimately want is something that's relatively easy, something that's somewhat predictable. That uh, you know, if you if you're looking at a software as a service company and you see that they're adding consumers uh, onto their platform and they're getting people that they've had as customers to pay more for their product, add stuff on over the course of time, you know that that business is going to keep growing. Uh, there are a lot more question marks, a lot more step changes in the technology that these two companies are going to have to navigate. I think it makes it a little bit tougher to make a bull case for them because of that. That said, you know, if freight becomes something that becomes a much larger part of the top line, if Uber Eats has 
very different economics than the core ride-sharing business, maybe there's something there. But with 80% being in the ride-sharing world, it's kind of hard to imagine that it meaningfully impacts the financials anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. I just don't see the point in investing in Uber at this point because of all the points you just mentioned. You know, like if like the core mobility stuff is terrible, the if you want, if you're interested in local food delivery, go buy Grubhub. They're a pure play. They seem to be doing pretty well. Their numbers look strong. The freight is such a tiny part of business that you don't you don't you're not gonna buy Uber for freight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, and. To buy a share, you're going to be paying a hefty premium. You know, we, we talked about the valuation they're going to be going live at. Not profitable. Uh, you're still paying a hefty multiple on sales there, and they're going to have to live up to that. I'm sure there's going to be a pop day one. So I will just say, if even after all this conversation, you are still dead set on buying Uber shares, just wait a couple days. Maybe wait a couple months. Let it settle in. Let some of the demand die down, and let them put out a couple earnings reports and get exposure. You know, we might see that over time uh, the business starts to materialize, especially as some of the technology that they're really relying on starts to come a little bit more into the mainstream. But nothing wrong with holding your horses here and watching this business for a little while, especially because we have a fairly new CEO at the helm trying to refurbish this company's image. Right, and I think that's another point too of like the matter of all this moral and ethical baggage that Uber has. I mean, this company has done so many terrible things throughout its history, and even though they kicked out Travis Kalanick a few years back and you know brought in Dara Shahi, I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. Uh, he, you know, he's definitely making a lot of positive changes in terms of internal corporate culture, but a lot of the fallout from Uber's past is still there. Kalanick still owns about nine percent of this company. This IPO is going to make him worth you know eight or nine billion dollars. Many drivers even today still. Struggle, struggle to make a living wage as a result of how Uber has historically underpriced its fares. There's this long-term effect that you know consumers that affects consumers' value perception, how much a ride is supposed to cost. And it's really hard. It's easy to bring that number down, but it's really hard to push that number back up. You know, they've pushed back against so many basic safety regulations over time that have resulted in bad things happening to just riders. I mean, there's just so much going on there, which is, for me, ethically, I, I don't use Uber ever. If I needed to use ride-sharing, I call a Lyft, but you know, it's just it's just a lot for me to to really be okay with. All right, Evan, why don't we switch gears from talking about a business that you and I are both not super fond of, though fascinated with, <laughs> to a company that we love to talk about, uh, and that is Apple. It would not be an Apple earnings show without Evan New. You are our resident expert. Uh, company put out numbers this week. Pretty strong reaction from the market. They seem to like what they saw. Yeah, I mean the total revenue is down about five percent to fifty-eight billion. Uh, the iPhone was the biggest drag on that top line. You know, revenue from iPhone was down seventeen percent uh, to about thirty-one billion. But I think the market's been kind of expecting that and pricing it in, so it's not really all that surprising, uh, particularly when you think about what's happening with the smartphone market globally. I mean, worldwide unit volumes are starting to kind of come down a little bit. Uh, the market's matured, volumes have peaked, and in particular, the premium end of the smartphone market, where Apple. Pri- Primarily plays is getting hit the hardest. So I mean, even though they don't disclose iPhone unit volumes anymore, we're getting some third-party estimates that think that iPhone units probably fell somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. Yeah, and that's tough to overcome when the biggest contributor to your top line is a business that's struggling. Um, part of the problem with them too is you know one of the big growth opportunities for them with the iPhone was China. That market has stalled a little bit. We aren't seeing some of the growth that we have seen there historically. Uh, and when people don't have the wage growth, the lifestyle growth that that they're expecting, uh, a lot of the premium products are going to suffer. Yeah, and the local brands in China are doing really well. Like Huawei, 
their units were up something like 50% last quarter because they're they're putting out these really good phones at really affordable prices, and that's really resonating. Uh, whereas Apple, I think they lost something like 30%. Uh, or excuse me, their units went down something like 30% in China, according to some recent estimates. So you know they're they're definitely losing quite a bit of share there. But at the same time, they're Apple's trying to pull certain levers um, to try to grow that business again. And I think there is some signs that it's working, which we can get on when we talk about their guidance. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say before we move over there, hardware wasn't all bad. We saw some good numbers out of the iPad segment, uh, 22% growth. It's still only about $5 billion in the top line. But that is the strongest growth we've seen there in, I think, five or six years. Um, Wearables Home also did pretty well. Same number there, about $5 billion contributing uh, to the top line. We can talk about hardware all day, though. What Apple really wants us to focus on <laughs> is the services segment, Evan. Right. So services, as they've been really hammering the services narrative for you know a couple of years now, hit a new quarterly record of 11.5 billion uh, on a trailing 12-month basis. Services now up to about 43 billion. So the right on you know they are on target to hit this 50 billion number in 2020 that they put out a couple of years ago. Uh, that's very much within reach at this point. Particularly when you, you add in these new services that they introduced last month, you have News Plus, TV Plus, this Apple Credit Card, and a subscription gaming service, and and you know. Even even every the past six quarters, they've been adding 30 million paid subscriptions. So at this point, they're up to 390 million. And in January, they set a, another, a different target, saying, "Hey, we're going to hit 500 million uh, paid subscriptions at some point in 2020." So even if you assume no acceleration, maybe from these new services, that would be you know 120 million more subscriptions over the next year. That's that puts them well over 500 million. So you know on that. You know, target two, uh, I think they're they're really executing pretty well on growing the services business, and you know, re- and really you know, trying to convince investors why they should care, and, and also putting up the numbers to back that up. As an investor, I care because that is high margin revenue that is coming in, and I'm happy about that. You think about having 500 million people um, paying something, you know, uh, to the company, uh, and that really just builds out the ability to add stuff down the road. You know, if they start adding. More services. If they build out something on the streaming side, who knows? Um, that creates the market and the appetite for a lot of that stuff that they can just tack stuff onto. Uh, especially once people are in the habit of paying Apple or going in through the App Store or what have you uh, to add stuff, you know, to whatever hardware they're using. And to your point about profitability, gross margin on the services business did tick up a little bit on a sequential basis. But at the same time, I you know. I think that you don't know where that's going to go in the future because each of these services has a very different margin profile. I mean, this video stuff is going to be so expensive to you know buy up and develop and produce all this original digital content, which we know is so expensive uh, from you know looking at companies like Netflix, for example. And you know, so each each you know service is totally different, but that number is still overall, I think, heading in the right direction. We can't talk about Apple without also briefly touching on the capital return program. One of the reasons investors love this company so much, this is the time of the year where we get an update on what's going on there, Evan. They didn't disappoint. Right. So this is always in the April May timeframe every year they give us this update. And if you look back, you know, last year in calendar 2018, they bought back about 71 billion dollars worth of stock, which is just kind of 
mind-boggling. And that was, you know, almost that was more than double what they bought in 2017, which was 32 billion. And this was all, of course, thanks to tax reform at the end of 2017. Uh, they had pulled back on the repurchase activity in, in the fourth quarter a little bit because they missed their revenue guidance so badly. But in the four, first quarter, they just bought back 24 billion, which is actually more than they bought back at any quarter in last year. And the board has authorized another 75 billion dollars on top of that uh, in, for future share purchases. And on top of that, they boosted their dividend by 5% to 77 cents per share. Kind of in same thing they've been doing every year. Every year they want to get more back and they allocate most of that towards share repurchases over dividends because they think that the shares are still undervalued and you know compelling prices to you know try to try to retire their shares at. I'm inclined to agree. Uh, coming down to either a dividend policy or a share buyback policy for a business that you know is generally going to be moving up into the right, like Apple's, you want to take those shares off the books if you can. I mean, for me, I look at a company paying a dividend, and that's basically saying I can't do anything better with this money. I'm just going to hand it to you. I'd rather they work down the shares outstanding, boost that EPS just a little bit every single quarter, <laughs> and wind up returning a little bit more value to people that way. Yeah, and it's more just you know. Their broader capital, you know, structure. You know, they have an idea of where they want their capital structure to be, and that involves re- reducing a lot of this equity that's outstanding. So, yeah. You know, at the same time, you know, they appreciate that they have a lot of income investors. So they do want to still give some of that those dividends to the people that rely on it. But you know, they 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 have their goals set, and they've been very consistent with how they've been executing it. Yeah, and for the time that they've been running this epic capital return program. Uh, it's almost always made sense for them to be buying back shares. You know, you look back at an Apple chart. Um, for the most part, they're almost always buying back shares at a lower valuation than they're currently trading. Particularly true if you go back a couple of years, and and I think that that's what people need to remember with these buybacks: is hey, we're in a way reinvesting in ourselves by taking all this stuff uh, out from our shares outstanding, and you're benefiting from this because you own a larger portion of the earnings that are coming in. Hard to argue with that as an investor. And they're definitely timing it too. I mean, if you look at what was happening, I mean, the entire market pulled back in the fourth quarter quite a bit. Like everything was selling off. So coming into the first quarter of 2019, a lot of stocks were just kind of low. So they they obviously saw that and really ramped up their buying activity. They you know, half of the 24 billion they bought back was part of an accelerated share repurchase program. So I mean, they're they're definitely factoring in the current market conditions when they make these decisions. Yeah, before we tape today's show, I did a quick look because you know I remember things being a little dire in the beginning of 2019 for Apple. Shares are up 48 percent since early January. Remarkable. They're like they're like 145 at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> remarkable for a company that size, um, outpacing the S&P's returns. And just a reminder of, you know, this is what a capital return program can do for you as an investor when you have a lot of cash to work with. Um, a really strong reaction to this earnings report. Market was really happy with it. Nothing that we've talked about uh, really raises too many eyebrows so far, Evan. I think that the reason most people were excited was Apple's management said, you know, things are going to look a little bit better next quarter than maybe you thought. Yeah, their guidance was actually pretty strong, uh, particularly coming off all the pessimism around how badly they missed in the fourth quarter. So, you know, their guidance is, you know, came in above expectations. So, they're expecting second quarter revenue uh, to be 52.5 to 54.5 billion versus the market was expecting, you know, 51.9 or so, under 52. So, you know, they're 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 comfortably above expectations there. Gross margin should be, you know, 37, 38%. And Tim Cook basically said that Apple is starting to recover in a lot of these key markets where it's 
struggled in the fourth quarter, most notably China, because they've been taking a series of measures to try to improve their competitiveness, such as absorbing foreign exchange movements in order to stabilize local pricing. They're reducing a lot of friction related to smartphone trade-ins. You know, a bunch of little levers like that they're pulling, but in aggregate, when you combine the effects, I think that's what we're seeing in this revenue forecast that's, that's pretty good. And I think it's a testament that those efforts are working, at least if they can hit their forecasts, unlike they did, you know, when they missed so badly in December. <laughs> this but, is how we got here, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> At face value. <laughs> yeah, and, and with them back up to roughly where they were a couple months back now, you know, I think they're just hovering below that $1 trillion valuation. And so I will say, you know, if you are a fairly new investor, it's, it's hard to go wrong buying shares of Apple, honestly, um, but they might not be the greatest mega cap tech stock out there if you're looking for some serious growth because they are facing some headwinds with their biggest segment, the iPhone segment. A lot of stuff to like with services, but um, I'm I'm sitting and I'm hanging out with my shares, basically. I'm holding the shares that I've bought several years back and just enjoying the capital return program, enjoying some of that dividend and the reinvestment there. Um, if I am looking to add to a major tech player, Apple might not be first on my list, just because I'm a little worried about what growth might look like for the next couple of years for them. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I'm just sitting on it, not really doing anything with it. But yeah, I think that one thing that Apple does need to do, looking further out and several years out, is really kind of show investors, okay, what does a post-iPhone Apple look like when the iPhone is no longer this huge, as big of a part of the business as it has been over the past 10 years? Because it's very clear that the smartphone market is, you know, maturing and saturating like these premium $1000 phones aren't selling as many as you need to really you know keep this business growing in the way that it is so what does that look like and they don't have an answer for that yet but we'll see yeah i think few people do i will say that they got me i bought a 10r because i was in desperate need <laughs> of an upgrade and let me tell you i feel like i am like living the life of luxury right now with my battery life so i am absolutely thrilled but yeah evan i don't think that people really have figured out what that next phase looks like it wasn't the Apple Watch. I mean, I don't know that they expected the Apple Watch to be the net next it category in terms of consumer electronics. We've seen some other phone makers mess around with folding phones. There have been some issues that have come with that. A uh, lot to say here that there are just more questions than answers when it comes to the future of consumer hardware and the thing that everyone's going to have in their pockets. Apple needs to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, is that going to be augmented reality glasses? I don't know. Apple driving self-driving car. I mean, <laughs> who knows? It's one of the more fun things to imagine. We've got time to figure that out, though. Evan, thanks for hopping on today's show. Thanks for having me, listeners. That does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say hey, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus@fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out videos from this podcast over on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.